Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is episode 21 of the podcast in which we will look at chapter 2 of Prince Caspian, titled The Ancient Treasure House. And this is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful chapter for a number of different reasons. It's not a long chapter and not much happens in it. The children are still... uh, disoriented as to where they are and what has happened from the last chapter when they were magically swept away from the train station platform and plopped into the middle of this foreign land. Uh, And in chapter two, not much advances plot-wise as far as action or anything like that, but a great deal of themes, concepts, notions that Lewis prioritized and valued and repeats often throughout the entire Chronicle's of Narnia occur here in this chapter, the ancient treasure house. And already in the title of the chapter, you can see something that's at the heart of Lewis's uh, worldview. And that is the, a love for the old things, a love for ancient things. Lewis himself um, styled himself as this medieval dinosaur of a man, um, a a person who found it difficult to master the, uh, the modern notion of the zipper. (laughs) He, he was very much uh, an Oxford-Cambridge man through and through, this this representative of old England. Uh, but in Narnia, in the world of it, you can already tell a love for these old things. And Narnia itself harkens back to this ancient land, a land of trees and rivers, of castles and kings, of swords and of nobility and honor. Uh, the, the magic of Narnia is the magic of its ancient strength. It's a wondrous joy that seems timeless uh, and yet also harkens back to a a time that has passed. Uh, I think people who read Narnia might have this um, inclination to visit Narnia because it is so different from the current time. It is this, uh, this returning to a world that is no longer with us, uh, returning to the status quo ante the way things were before, maybe before the fall, this return to Eden, or even just a return to the high times of chivalry and code and feasting and banqueting and dancing. Uh, I think that awakens something of the revelry that lies dormant in all of us that that longs to be released again. Um, but even the uh, ancient treasure house uh, chapter itself, this... this um, passage that we're about to look at, the children, descend, by the end of the chapter, they descend into this secret path that goes down these steps into the heart of Narnia itself. Now, again, they don't know they're in Narnia, but they were about to um, go further in, as it were, uh, to discover uh, where they are and who they are in this magical land. So there's something about this ancient world that awakens something uh, truly magical in all of us. Uh, it creates this nostalgia and this uh, this longing within us, this aching within us uh, for the beauty of a, a world that has gone to ruin, um, which incidentally, the setting for this chapter is the ruins of Care Paravel. And through the course of the chapter, they discover that where they are is this faded glory, this faded ruin of the castle that they ruled from, the castle uh, where they were crowned, kings and queens of Narnia. So, it's a nostalgia for an ancient land, a nostalgia for magic and glory, but also a nostalgia for uh, a memory, 
a nostalgia for a world that we had been to before. And in this way, Lewis, I think, is weaving uh, not just um, this notion of lostness, this notion of ancient, medieval, hierarchical uh, worlds that the atmosphere of the medieval in this chapter is thick. We'll ha- we have the castle of Caraparavel. We have uh, the sword and the shield that Peter will gain again at the end. Even the, the, the chess piece that Susan retrieves and brings back happens to be the knight. It's this gold knight chess piece that they used to play with when they were kings and queens. Uh, that The whole chapter evokes this medieval world of Christendom, um, uh, the world of Aslan, the world of honor and magic and, uh, and battle and so on. All of that is just um, baptizing this entire story. But also we get the sense of lostness. It, it's a longing for a world that has come to ruin. It's longing for a world that seems broken or gone. And it creates that desire to, as John Milton says, to repair the ruins, a desire to return to Narnia, and to quote the subtitle of the book. And before we get into the chapter, there's a, there's a notion that Lewis talks about, uh, particularly in Surprised by Joy. It's this concept that uh, is quite dear to him and quite important to understanding him and his worldview. In fact, in Surprised by Joy, he says there's no understanding his life and his uh, worldview apart from understanding this concept. And that is the notion of sinsucht. Uh, and sinsucht is a German word that Lewis used to, to identify this, this beautiful ache that all of us have for joy, for ultimate satisfaction, ultimate beauty, this longing we have to come home, this, this uh, what he calls an inconsolable longing in the heart for we know not what. This inconsolable longing, it's a, it's a painful awakening. Uh, it's a reaching, it's a desiring uh, that is inconsolable. And yet the longing and the desiring itself is beautiful and joyful and glorious. And it, it's, a, it's an awakened desire for an ultimate home and an ultimate satisfaction. Uh, at the end of his book, Pilgrim's Regress, uh, Lewis uh, uses this uh, language. He says, it's the, it is that unnameable something, desire for which pierces us like a rapier at the smell of bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the title of the well at the world's end, the opening lines of Kubla Khan, the morning cobwebs in late summer, or the noise of falling waves. Uh, it's this unnameable something the desire for which pierces us like a rapier at the smell of bonfire and so on. This, these um, glorious, beautiful, what he called stabs of joy come in and pierce our very core and awaken within us this longing for uh, the great land, this longing for wonder and astonishment and awe, this longing for the beauty of holiness. Um, Dwight Longenecker in uh, an article on this notion of sinsucht, he describes it this way. He says, this longing remains dormant in daily life until it is sparked by a profound aesthetic experience. Suddenly the soul awakes and the longing is fleetingly fulfilled. C.S. Lewis called this surge in the heart, this uplift, joy, hence the title of his book, Surprised by Joy. 
This painfully exquisite joy comes unbidden and echoes in his heart like the sounding of the distant horn of a long lost hero. And I don't think it's an accident that Longenecker in that article uses the notion of the blowing of a horn from a distant land as something that might awaken this inconsolable longing within us, because that's exactly the circumstances we have in chapter two, though we don't know it yet. um, We discover later that it is the blowing of Susan's enchanted horn that pulls the four children into Narnia again. But it is this awakening within them and by extension, us, the reader, that creates this powerful sensation of longing and aching and desiring um, for a joy that has gone, that has faded, and we long to return to again. And so it's those, those images of lostness, of memory, of nostalgia, and of desire that permeate this entire chapter. So the chapter opens with Susan saying, this wasn't a garden, it was a castle. Remember, they had noticed a tree and a stone wall, these pictures of nature and culture at the end of chapter one. Now, the first inkling we get of the setting is that it's a faded castle, which again, uh, harkens to the the medieval atmosphere that Lewis is creating here. Um, But as the children try to get a grip on where they are, they say they are overcome by this queer feeling that something magical is hanging in the air. Lucy alludes to that. But as they're doing it, Peter says, don't you see that was the dais where the high table was, where the king and the great lord sat. Anyone would think you had forgotten that we ourselves were once kings and queens. And Susan responds, oh, yes, in our castle of Caerperavel at the mouth of the great river of Narnia. How could I forget? And so along with uh, language of memory of lostness of nostalgia of desire comes this language of memory how could i forget don't you remember these phrases are repeated constantly in this chapter uh, because that's exactly what has happened the children have forgotten who they are and where they are which uh, gk chesterton um in his book orthodoxy he has this beautiful chapter called the ethics of elfland where he strikes at that very notion that all of us have forgotten who we are. And the task of education, the task of sanctification, the task of faith is to remember what we have forgotten. We have forgotten that we were made for Eden. We have forgotten that we were made in the image of God. We have forgotten that we are uh, the crown of God's creation, that we are the governors of this whole earth, that he has given us the dominion mandate to cultivate this great land, that we are co-heirs with Christ. We have forgotten who we are. And what we must constantly do in preaching the gospel to ourselves, what we must constantly do in our communities of faith, in our churches, in our daily living, is remember who we are. This is the Old Testament notion of raising an Ebenezer, that the Israelites were constantly told to raise a memorial, to raise up a monument to raise an Ebenezer, to remember the work of God in their lives, to teach it to their children. This is um, the same uh, injunction that we get in Deuteronomy 6, uh, that we are to instruct our children when we rise, when we go about our day, when we lie down at night, to bind it around our fingers, to constantly speak of what God has done so that we do not forget it. And that is our most devastating flaw, is that we forget who we are. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They forgot who they were. 
that they were creatures and not creators, that they were humans and not gods. And they strove after and reached for that which was not theirs. In that book, Orthodoxy by Chesterton, the, the chapter on the ethics of Elfland, he says this, quote, We have all read in scientific books, and indeed in all romances, the story of the man who has forgotten his name. This man walks about the streets and can see and appreciate everything, only he cannot remember who he is. Well, every man is that man in the story. Note that. Every man is that man in the story. Every man has forgotten who he is. One may understand the cosmos, but never the ego. The self is more distant than any star. Chesterton says that the one thing that we tend to forget the most is who we are. We might go through the business of discovering everything and in so doing forget the one thing that's most crucial that we remember, which is that we are not God. We are creatures. He is the potter and we are the clay. And for Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, they have forgotten that they are kings and queens of this land. They have forgotten that they ruled from Care Paravel, and this chapter will go about the business of awakening that knowledge within them, bringing to mind who they are through profound aesthetic experiences, right? the taste of a Narnian apple, the sound of the water, the discovery of the ruins of Care Paravel, their old gifts from Father Christmas, which they'll find in this treasure house, even the discovery of the chess piece goes to great lengths in awakening a, rem a reminder to each of them of who they are and how they ought to go forward in this world. Anyone would think you'd forgotten that we ourselves were once kings and queens, Peter says. We too must remember who we are. Lucy says how it all comes back. She says we could pretend we were in Care Paravel now. This hall must have been very like the great hall we feasted in. And so what begins as a pretending turns into a true discovery that it's in their uh, thinking of who they once were that they discover they still are kings and queens. And it all, as Lucy says, starts to come back. Well, they go on to explore uh, the ruins. They build a campfire. They start gathering things they will need for the night. Susan, as I've mentioned, goes out and discovers a little chess knight uh, as Lewis describes it, ordinary in size, but extraordinarily heavy because it was made of pure gold. And this moment she brings it back and um, Lewis even says it sounded like she was going to cry. Uh, and Lucy says, it's exactly like one of the golden chessmen we used to play with when we were kings and queens at Caerpiravel. But as Aslan says that they're once a king and queen of Narnia, always a king and queen. Lucy says when they were kings and queens, but they still are. They still are kings and queens at Caerpiravel, and they must go through the task of remembering. And this little chess knight, um, such a, a minuscule thing, yet it evokes this sinsukt, this experience of awe and longing and desire at the memory of who they were um, and the discovery that they are still uh, kings and queens. As a side note, there's a beautiful book written by Michael Ward, um, is a very famous book. It came out uh, about 12 years ago. It's called Planet Narnia. And that book I commend to anybody listening to this podcast. I would almost encourage you to just press pause now and go get that book and read it. Uh, that's how powerful and glorious it is. But in that book, he makes the case 
that uh, each of the seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia is patterned after each of the seven planets of the medieval cosmos. And that Lewis had a particular mission in mind in patterning it that way. And that um, the medieval and martial elements of Prince Caspian um, imitate this, uh, the atmosphere of Mars as the planet of war and so on. And he says, isn't it interesting that of all the chess pieces they find, they find a knight, uh, perhaps the most iconic uh, medieval image. But it's just a couple of paragraphs later that Peter, uh, in fact, says that we are in the ruins of Care Paravel itself, that they make this discovery that they are in the ruins of Care Paravel. And so are we. I think it's just a, a wonderful moment in the chapter for us to reflect as readers on our own situations, that we too are in the ruins of Care Paravel. We too are in the ruins of a great and glorious kingdom that has fallen uh, to the white witches and the mirazes and all these despots and tyrants of human history, that we are not living in the, in the world that uh, we ought to be that we were made for Eden and we live in Babel. We live in this constructed, manufactured uh, language, uh, world of confusion, confused languages. We live in this world of uh, shattered glory. And oh, how desperately we long to return to the glory that was before. This is that experience of Sinsukt, the, the, the idea of living in the ruins of Eden creates within the human heart this unrelenting desire to return to Eden, to return to Kirpiraville, to return to the golden age, to return to the way things ought to be uh, with Aslan um, on the move and the kings and queens crowned in Kirpiraville. So the children begin to consider that they might actually be in the ruins of Kirpiraville. They begin to think about the courtyard and the well and how they had everything arranged, and it starts dawning on them that may, they may in fact be in Narnia. Um, but it's Edmund who brings up the the disorientation that they're experiencing, that how could it be, and we don't know as the reader either, how could it be that they were only in Narnia a year ago? They mentioned in chapter one that it's only been one year. Uh, and yet, uh, Kira Paravel is in ruins, and the ivy is sprawling all over the castle walls. Uh, uh, there's dust everywhere. This is not a world that has only been vacated for one year, um, which leads the reader to ask, what, what has happened to the old Narnia? Remember, this is the ancient treasure house. That's the title of the chapter um, that Lewis chooses. And later on, when we get to Prince Caspian himself as a character and Dr. Cornelius, who is his tutor, uh, Dr. Cornelius will eventually confide in Prince Caspian about how he harbors a love for the old things, a love for old Narnia, um, the old Narnia that we come to find out has been um, forced underground by the ruthless rule of uh, Miraz. But here we're discovering this sense of disorientation, that how is it that... Uh, one year in human time might account for many years in Narnian time. But the professor in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe indicates that, that uh, the possibility that Narnian time and human time don't work um, the same, as well as he indicates that returning to Narnia 
happens when you least expect it, that you can't just go through the wardrobe again. And here the children were plucked out of their, um, their location on the train platform and sent to Narnia uh, somewhat magically at a time when they were least expecting it. But at the end of this point, um, in, in a way of testing to see if they're actually in Care Paravel, uh, they begin looking for certain things, and uh, I believe it's Lucy who brings up the notion that there was a door uh, at the end of the dais that led down to the treasure chamber. So that's where the children begin to go. They find the door, they tear away the ivy, um, and they begin to descend down the steps. Edmund, fortunately, happens to have a flashlight on him, which has just got to be the luckiest thing in the world of all the things that he was holding on to. When the children were swept away into Narnia, he happens to be holding a flashlight. Um, it's quite wonderful. But as they descend the stairs, we get more of this uh, medieval atmosphere that Lewis is creating. Uh, they uh, descend down into the treasure chamber of Care Paravel, um, and they're walking through this chamber where they happen upon all of these medieval items. They see suits of armor. Uh, they see treasure chests, necklaces, rings, dishes. Uh, tusks of ivory, uh, precious stones. Um, it evokes absolutely this glorious age of medieval chivalry that um, that Lewis personally loved, but also he believed evokes the sense of nostalgia and wonder for the Pevensies as well. But the, the, at the end of that paragraph, uh, Lewis says something that's quite um, important as all of these themes coalesce into one the themes of memory, the themes of sin-sucked and longing and desire, uh, the sense of lostness and ruin. Uh, at the end of that paragraph, he says this, there was something sad and a little frightening about the place because it all seemed so forsaken and long ago. That was why nobody said anything for at least a minute. So already you get this sense of the numinous, the sense of the holy or the sacred being evoked, not only by use of the words sad and frightening, that there's this melancholy sobriety uh, to the atmosphere of the treasure chamber, but also with uh, the, con the statement he ends with that nobody said anything, that there's this hush of reverence that comes about them that creates that, that tension for the reader as well. This is the word I used is the numinous, this experience of the holy that Lewis writes about often in his work uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that experience the children share when they hear Aslan's name for the first time. It's this, this hush of joy and glory, but also of fear and of awe and reverence. Well, that same experience is happening here. It, it all seemed so forsaken and ancient and sad and quiet uh, as the children have this encounter with ancient wonder, uh, this experience of true holiness. And Lewis goes on. Then, of course, they began walking about and picking things up to look at. It was like meeting very old friends. If you had been there, you would have heard them saying things like, oh, look, our coronation rings. Do you remember first wearing this? Why, this is the little brooch we all thought was lost. I say, isn't that the armor you wore in the great tournament in the Lone Islands? Who does not want to take part in the tournament of the Lone Islands? <laughs> Do you remember the dwarf making that for me? Do you remember drinking out of that horn? Do you remember? Do you remember? I love this paragraph because the excitement the children share at discovering all of the old things, 
first of all, that phrase, do you remember, is repeated five times in this paragraph alone. This constant uh, sense of going back, of returning, of remembering what was lost. But also just the joy of um, rediscovering the magical, the joy of reawakening what was forgotten brings about the sense of wonder and the sense of joy, even down to the the notion of the tournaments they once held and the rings they once get, uh, received. And um, all of these beautiful memories come back to remind them of who they were before. And the perhaps the most important part uh, part of this is that Lewis directly addresses the reader and directly involves you and me in this experience where he says, if you had been there, you would have heard them saying things like this. That he's drawing us in directly by speaking to us in the second person so that we might remember alongside them our own desires and longings. This sin sucked that needs to be awakened within each of us. This longing you and I have for um, these things that have been forgotten. He says it was like meeting very old friends. Uh, The beautiful consolation of being reunited with that which has been lost. Uh, That's what lies at the heart of the Bible, that all of us are longing for Eden. All of us are longing for home, longing for our father. It's all of us are prodigal sons, um, longing for a, a reuniting with our father, longing to come home and longing for the great celebration and the feast that is to come. But in the final moments of the chapter, they discover, the children do in this treasure chamber, the gifts that Father Christmas had given them in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, of course, Edmund doesn't discover a gift because he wasn't there when Father Christmas gave them out. Uh, He was in the very midst of his betrayal with the White Witch against his siblings. And it's important, Devin Brown talks about this, it's important to notice that Lewis doesn't shy away from the consequences of choices. That Edmund's choice to betray his his brothers and sis- his brother and sisters um, and everything that came of that, that choice led to the consequences, consequence of not receiving a gift from Father Christmas. And though he's been forgiven by Aslan and he's been restored and redeemed, here now he is still reckoning with the consequence. There is no gift for him down in this treasure chamber. But Peter and Susan and Lucy rediscover their gifts. Lucy uh, discovers the cordial that uh, can heal wounds. Susan discovers the bow and arrow. And then last of all, Peter discovers the sword and the shield um, that he was given by Father Christmas. But interestingly, one of the gifts is missing. And that is Susan's horn. And Lucy tells Susan at the end of this paragraph where they discover all of these gifts, oh, Susan, where's the horn? And Susan says, oh, bother, 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 said Susan, after she had thought for a moment. I remember now I took it with me the last day of all, the day we went hunting the white stag. It must have got lost when we blundered back into that other place. England, I mean. And there are two things that are really interesting about this. The the less interesting thing, but still noteworthy, is how she refers to England at first as that other place. And then she corrects herself. Oh, oh, I mean England. And where you're beginning to see how the magical air of Narnia is working its way into the hearts of these children, where they're starting to remember Narnia as their home and England as that other place back in the spare room uh, beyond the wardrobe. So the effect is taking place. 
But first of all is when she says that she lost the horn uh, when they were out hunting the white stag. And that's a, a bad, it's a, a bother to Susan. It must have got lost when we blundered back. A- after she says that Edmund whistled and Lewis says it was indeed a shattering loss for this was an enchanted horn. But the point to know later in the story, though, is that the losing of this shattered horn in the woods enables it to be discovered in Prince Caspian and then used ultimately during the battle uh, at the end of the book to summon the children back into Narnia. In effect, the horn is the one gift of these kings and queens of Narnia that the old Narnians discover. The rest of them, as we know, were collecting dust in the treasure chamber, but it was the horn that the children thought was lost, right? At this point in the story, they don't know where it is, and yet it wasn't lost. What seems to be an unfortunate accident becomes the device that saves all of Narnia. And what a beautiful picture of the gospel. A day of crucifixion, a day of death, that we believe seems to be the end of everything, seems to be an unfortunate occurrence, seems to be a tragedy, in fact, becomes the device that saves all of the world. Um, so there's this little indication here that, uh, that Susan's horn, though lost to the children at this point in the narrative, will play a massive role in the story as a whole. And the final um, awakening of this longing for joy and this longing for beautiful for beauty this longing for the glory of narnia occurs at the er- the very end of this stretch where susan takes up the bow uh and er- and the uh, string which has not um withered or has not um become too dry or broken up she takes the string and uh, and pulls it back and twangs it. And Lewis says, a chirruping twang vibrated through the whole room. And that one small noise brought back the old days to the children's minds more than anything that had happened yet. All the battles and hunts and feasts came rushing into their heads together. This is uh, certainly in this chapter where he says that occurrence did more than anything that had happened yet. This is one of those moments uh, in the chapter where Lewis really uh, embodies or exemplifies that inconsolable longing, that notion of sin sucked, awakened by a profound aesthetic experience. Somehow the sound of Susan's bowstring awakens within the children and in us um, the battles and the hunts and the feasts. It was a it brought back a longing for the old days, a longing that will uh, become this subterranean theme throughout the entirety of Prince Caspian. So thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time as we look at chapter three of Prince Caspian titled The Dwarf.